Guys, good morning. If you uh, can open up to Matthew chapter 7. I'll change the stand. I'll use the short people. Um, Matthew chapter 7. This sermon is going to be interesting. It is mostly, first off, it's really good to be back. It's great to be here. The... Um, The, uh, the sermon itself is going to be mostly, is going to be uh, geared towards relationships and conflict, which our nation definitely doesn't struggle with whatsoever. That was a joke. There you go. So um, let me just read through this. Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. To which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So just a reminder, the word of the Lord, amen. This is a reminder that the Sermon on the Mount is essentially trying to give us the heavenly vision for life. What is life like in heaven? And we need as the church, as disciples of Christ, to be the embodiment of that life on earth. It is an upside down manner, as we have seen throughout the sermon series, in which our culture lives the other way, in the unexpected way that we are to live, is what Jesus brings to us. And so before we dive into this text, I want to make us aware of a couple of things. Um, if we do not pay attention to this conversation, our culture, and its many powerful aspects that I will break down super quick, will shape you. It will give you ways and things to measure other people by if you are not intentionally allowing Christ to give you that measure. Um, okay, yeah, I'll say it, whatever. Basically today, okay, there is this whole uh, uh, conflict-driven thing that is fueled by essentially what becomes money. Um, it, it's, it's funny because people, you know, the most famous verse in all of Scripture is don't judge me. How many times have we said that, you know, or people say it? Don't judge me, right? But we've, but the, our nation has created massive engines of profits via Facebook, Google, Instagram, et cetera, that literally, here's what happens. I'll just, I'll break this down. Hopefully, it'll be a little bit of ed education. So be like, oh, that's why everybody hates each other for no reason at all. This is why, all right? Because literally, these companies record all of your activity, okay? They record it all. They know. They start learning what you like and what you don't like. And so I, I tested this. I got a computer next to mine and my buddies, and we Googled the same thing, two different results. Because they know 
what you will probably click on. The more you engage their platforms, the more money they make. And so what happens, though, is because there's so many, just a flood of headlines all over the world of the Internet, okay, people don't read articles. Of course, who has time to read an article? What do you read? Headlines. So how in the sea of headlines do they get your attention? By making the most dramatic, exaggerated, ridiculous headlines. You'll say, really? Who did what? He said, what? And then you engage it and you share it and then they make their money. Literally, this engine, it makes profit off of inciting conflict or trying to stir conflict. And mostly, as we know in our politically charged environment, most of this has to do with political ideology. And then we get stuck in this reinforcement bubble on my computer and your computer and your phone and my phone to where all these things get reinforced and get more and more intense, more and more intense, and I get more and more intense towards the things that I like or believe or don't believe. And then people don't know how to talk to each other, and now they're killing each other, right, and screaming at one another. And so, this is so bad. We all knew this. That uh, um, I don't know if you knew it or not, but Ellen DeGeneres, okay, she's a lesbian, left-leaning talk show host set next to a conservative former President George Bush. And she actually felt like, compelled to state why she didn't want to strangle the guy. And actually sat next to him and had a conversation as if it was like a, a big deal, okay? So I'm afraid that you and I, if we get caught up in this, um, th that we have get caught up in this, and it's a massive blind spot. It affects our interpersonal relationships. It can at least so much so that if you were to come in close proximity to another person who lives and believes and embraces things that are completely wholly other from yourself, that you don't know how to interact with them. The only thing you know is what's reinforced continually in your own life is to want to tell them why they're wrong and to prove to them that they're wrong. I think it's the measure of why you're right. Or at least just cast a skeptical eye and walk away and as if they had the cooties or something. So to, even before we engage this text, a couple of things. One of the best things you can do for the embodiment of the text that we're going to read this morning is to put down your phones. Limit your social media applications on your phone. Have your spouse or a friend generate a time restriction password that you can only have maybe 15 minutes a day to engage this stuff. Unplug from it because it is toxic. It shapes you more than you know. I looked it up, okay, and all the statistics show you will spend from here to the day you die, if you have a smartphone, about 10 to 15% of your life staring at that screen. And you want to tell me that does not have an influence on how you're shaped to perceive the world? Well, of course it does. 10% of your life staring at a screen. So number one, before we do this, we have to unplug from that. Be aware that your phone that you hold and all the media that you engage shapes you. Okay? It shapes you. Number two, the first thing before anything else, you are a Christian. If you know Jesus this morning, that is who you are. You are a Christian, before we engage this text, in your relationship with others, as we interact with others in this world, you must know that your faith and your identity lies in Christ first and foremost before any other ideology. You are not to identify others according to whatever beliefs or political beliefs or this or that that they hold, but rather identify them as human beings made in the image of God first. And what this kingdom ethic is going to do for you and I is to reorient the very fabric of how and even why we criticize or judge others. The sermon today could actually save you incredible amounts of emotional energy 
This sermon could save you from wasting precious hours of your life flipping through whatever biased networks or news or this that it could actually help you be on mission and be more caring and loving towards those around you regardless of what they believe. It could help bring relational harmony to your life, harmony even within yourself, as you will see, will even bring you in relational harmony more and more with our God. Christians, we need to be the first ones to not be caught up in the silly world that we're in right now, but unfortunately, Christians often are at the front lines of it. So step one, put down your phone. Step two, let's look at scripture. Verse one, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. That word hypocrite literally means actor. It's where um, the, uh, all the Greeks used to call their actors. Okay, You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the first question we must ask as we dive into the scripture is this. What, or when the Bible uses the word judge, what does it mean? Usually when we hear that word, what do we think of? We think of the word condemn. Sure, there is an inappropriate instance, um, instances of judging others, and this verse definitely applies to that. But the question must be, what really is the goal, the end point of judgment? Why? Would you bring judgment to somebody else or criticism to somebody else? What is the end goal of that? Well, the etymology of the word judgment and justice have similar roots, and they're kind of deeply connected thoughts. The idea of, um, of a, a judge in the Latin, in our English, it stems from it. It's a kind of a combination of the base words from law and right. And the Latin for justice means the administration of what is right. So in other words, justice is done when an action from proper judgment is carried out. They're deeply connected. Therefore, what is the end point of bringing judgment to somebody? It is not judging for the sake of judging. Or judging to prove that you are right and to prove that they are wrong. But before um, we ask the end point of judging, let's, let's answer first the obvious motivation in which we judge others. Usually it comes from arrogance. You and I, by nature naturally think we got it all figured out the way you understand life if you don't pay attention to yourself under some kind of self-watch you will naturally think that you are good that you are flawless in your understanding of the world you probably won't vocalize that right i know i do this i have to catch myself all the time right in this i do believe because you and i are fallen creatures we have a very natural inclination to stand in judgment against other people who may believe differently or act differently or live differently than yourself how often do you and I do that? I'm sure much more than we want to admit. But what is the end goal of that kind of judgment? What is the measure? The measure is yourself. You become the standard by which you engage and judge others. Unfortunately, that's the way of nature. It's sinful. It's awful. It is not gracious. And unfortunately, it is dramatically reinforced in many ways, as we just mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. Justice is the goal of judgment. Somebody's wholeness. They're flourishing, their growth. Hold on to those things. We'll be tackling that in just a moment. But what's even more tragic is when we approach other people um, as if God is on our side of our understanding of the world. And thus, when we bring criticism or judgment to somebody else, we are doing so in the name of God himself. 
Nathaniel Hawthorne gives a great example of this in his classic work, The Scarlet Letter. He describes the, uh, this Puritan community in the 1600s in America. Um, a bunch of old, stale Christians who really thought this idea of the city of God that they had built, that they got it all figured out. And their justice system was in essence going to enforce what God's judgment was. So if you buck against the system, their judicial system in that community was in essence a reflection of God's judgment himself. And so when you have Hester, okay, who committed the sin of adultery and was forced to wear the scarlet letter A the entire time, they thought that their judgment of her was to be as sure as the judgment of hell itself against Hester. And as you read this book, there's something big that Hawthorne is trying to point out. He is saying this, what about Hester? What about her good? Where is this judgment have, what does this judgment have in, uh, in reference to her and herself and her growth as an individual? There was no vision for that. It was merely saying she's a sinner and she's wicked and everybody needs to know it. But there's no vision in place for what happens after that. Surely we grow, surely we change. Where is grace? Where is, where is love and care? None of that existed and it was all in the name of Christ. So here's a problem, right? Um, we, we understand that the good news of, well, this isn't a problem. This, the good news of Christ is this. Divine judgment is not your responsibility to cast to other people. That belongs to God himself. That was a critical error against Hester that I think often we can do. Maybe, maybe we vocalize it, maybe we don't. We can fall into this as well. There is a judgment that belongs to God and God alone. Judgment that is being according to Peter, continually delayed in order that mercy may be continued to be extended through the good news of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the very reason why Christ is delayed in coming is in order that many may turn from their sin. Deuteronomy 32.25 is very clear. It says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul picks this up in Romans 12.9 and quotes that verse, but he says, but for you, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. In other words, when we cast judgment on someone else, we need to understand God's role and our role. God's role is to bring about the wrath due to them on their sin. But he has done that on his son, providing a way for that to be uh, satisfied on someone else in your place so it doesn't come on you. You could have never done that you cannot do that and therefore right now we are to merely point people and direct people to the one who died for them so his love can now be unleashed on them this is done in order that they may be saved and afterwards continually shaped into the image of the true human being jesus christ himself all for god's glory and for their flourishing that is the way of grace and that is the current way of justice that belongs to us but i got ahead a little bit because before any of that can really naturally occur, before we understand, we've got to point people to Christ. If, he, if they want to feel the wrath against their sin, we'll help, guide them to Scripture. Scripture speaks. Guide them to the cross. Show them what the wrath of God looks like. And as for you, love them and care for them and clothe them and serve them. But before any of that happens, there's a crucial step. A crucial step. A step that will ensure that our judgment of others is not out of self-pride. Or holding up the measure of our own standard against others. It is of self-judgment. Look at verse 3 and 4 and 5 again. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the law that is in your own eye? This is a joke from Jesus, by the way. Um, we read this, we don't maybe see it as a joke, but just imagine the scenario. 
There's a two by four sticking out of somebody's face, and they're saying, you have a sawdust speck in your eye. It's funny. We read this, we say, ha ha, Jesus, that's actually a really funny image. And he says, look, take out that plank. There's a log out of your face. Take it out. So you can clearly see the speck in the other person's eye. We need to learn to be self-critical in a healthy manner. Again, what is the aim of judgment that is given to us? For growth and not for condemnation. Love is a motivation, not wrath. Often we have a plank in our own eye that we have ignored as we try to dissect someone else's life in order to remove the speck from their eye. Judgment is involved with righteousness. What is right? And the idea is for that person to move on beyond what they maybe perhaps made a mistake in. This may not be repeated in that mistake, but may begin growing in light of Christ. But I'll take a break here and get a little personal with you guys right now. Because I'm a season where self-criticism, I had to really uh, kind of do that and learn how to do that in a healthy way. Um, I, I must tell you, it's been a really helpful season for me just to uh, be able to, to, to talk about this to myself, to my wife, to other people, to engage this, right? Um, and, and my imperfections and failures and plain out of in, in my eye, right? And so um, just recently, as you guys know, I tried to plant a church and it didn't work. We started off with 60 people and I succeeded in getting it down to about 15 on our last Sunday. Um, that's probably smaller than most of the community groups here. So I'm going to brag on somebody right now, and he knows I'm going to do this, and his name is Rich Bergstrom. I encourage you guys to one day to listen to his story. I'm not at liberty to tell it, but um, I sat down with him at lunch the day for hours. We sat for two hours, and I told him all the reasons. He was asking questions about what happened at the plant, and I was explaining, walking through it, and Rich, in all of his wisdom, he kept digging, and he kept digging, and planks kept popping out of my face, right? Because he kept revealing, man, I really screwed up here. Man, I made a huge mistake here. Oh, man, I really messed up here. And he helped me understand that even the very foundation that the church plant was built on, there's a lot of problems with that very foundation. It was going to be very difficult to have anything built healthy on that foundation. But he looked at me, right? And he says, you got to own it. You got to grow from it, admit it to the church, and even apologize for some of your mistakes. So I want to do that. I made rash, um, some rash decisions, youthful zeal. <clears throat> youthful zeal without knowledge, um, perhaps uh, just a lot of uh, passion for Christ was lacking some wisdom. Um, but one of the main things to be learned from my recent experiences is this. You realize you made mistakes, right? And I know, I know a lot of money and time and resources were put into something, okay? Some mistakes were made. But any kind of failed attempt like that at church planting, um, anything in your life that you may have done that hasn't worked, or you tried to invest your time in your life into another person, and you screwed up, or your, your job, or something else, you really made a massive mistake, that mistake is not who you are. To be self-critical is to, be judge, to, be, uh, to bring judgment against yourself, but not to condemn yourself. It's not taking out the plank out of your head and then smashing your face with it. I must say that Rich's words, man to man, was the most helpful in this whole process. Literally almost everybody has been so kind to me. You know, you're not a failure. You, this plant didn't fail due to your mistakes. And I would kind of say, I, I did make some mistakes. No, 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 it's not your fault. It's okay. With great wisdom, Rich now stands as one of the only people in my life that wisely told me, 
Yes, you made mistakes, which did help lead to the plant closing in the process. But he left me with the instruction to grow from it, to own it, and to move on without any sort of condemnation to myself. It was self-criticism infused with grace and infused with justice, the very kind that God is directing us to have here for our growth. Do you know how to do that? Are you quick to judge others but hide from looking at your own life first? How much time do you spend talking about other people and what they did to others? Are you afraid of your own mistakes? Are you afraid of your own inadequacies? Are you so concerned about upholding your image before others that you refuse to let others know of your mistakes? Are you afraid to admit your deep, dark secrets of sin and failure that nobody knows about? 1 John 4.18 is very clear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. But whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The gospel is one of love being unleashed on you. The punishment is taken away. It is absorbed for you. So why are you afraid? Do you feel better when, when calling out other people's mistakes while snuffing out and hiding from your own? Do you emotionally freak out when somebody tries to bring correction to you? I remember one time I did that to somebody. And for like 15 minutes, I got to hear about every opinion of him uh, geared towards me. Some of the most hateful things is just a blah, just vomited all over me. And I'm like, man, this is wild, right? If that's your default and you run from your own self-criticism, criticism, but a defensive mechanism, start attacking that very person that you, um, that, that criticized you, find your own planks and repent. Turn. Jesus wants you to be like him, to know yourself. He was the most ancient Secular philosophers have said it should be the very end goal of your thinking. But as a Christian, we know that we actually have an inf a different end game. It's not just to know yourself. It's to know that you yourself are in Christ, are in union with Christ. You are a new creation, says Paul. Therefore, all the grace of God is unleashed on you, freeing you up to face your mistakes, receiving grace from God, growing from them, and praying that he can continue to help and flourish in you, recognizing the plaints of your own mistakes and failures are a part of what it means to be a human being. Here's just a handful of verses that guide us to this thinking. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. You know that verse ends, lest he fall. Psalm 37, 23 to 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. There's so many more I could read. According to these verses then, by first having a knowledge of yourself, your own plank sticking out of your own eye, in other words, an honest assessment of yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses, your present sins, and having a correct biblical vision for why those things need to be turned of, repented of, and admitted, all in light of the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace, only then can you find the foundation you need to approach your brother and sister with their own weaknesses. The goal, like your own self-criticism, is one of growth in Christ, not their condemnation. Nothing is more powerful than having a humble person who is free to admit their own faults and their own mistakes while still being gracious in their correction to your own life. They're not standing on a high porch saying, look at me and look at you. See the difference? They're not doing that. They're saying, I get it. I have some plaints in my own eye. There's plenty of them. But you need to face yours. 
This is a crucial process in the, in the part of creating a kingdom-minded, biblical Christian community that we desperately want at Redeemer to be able to do so without taking all these things personally, without creating conflict, but rather a culture of maturity and a culture of growth, one that this world desperately needs to observe. So the passage continues. Sometimes when we approach others with these things, we must pay attention to things like timing and also to exactly whom we are bringing the correction. Verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Many of you, many of, maybe you've had this experience, but there's been times when I've approached people um, with their sins right when it was the most inopportune times for them to hear it. I didn't react well. In fact, most of those instances, relationship kind of got damaged. Usually when I do that, either I was not being graceful in my approach, or I lacked the insight to know that that person wasn't in the spot to quite hear it and to be able to turn from it, but only to just react to it. Here's another flip side of that coin. Sometimes we expect others to act according to the biblical manner when they don't even embrace Jesus. And we toss the holy things to them and expect them to respond as if they care. According to Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. It is not your job to bring judgment to those outside the church. If people do not identify as Christians um, and do not confess faith in Christ, am I to throw corrections to them that can only be really understood through a love for Jesus? Is not that throwing what is holy to people who do not embrace the reality of biblical holiness and any kind of vision for it in Christ? We need discernment, not just on how we approach them, but also on who we are approaching. The Proverbs show some tension in this as well when it comes to our circumstances, all kinds of things here. Proverbs 6, 26, 4 says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Great, that makes sense. Don't be a fool by giving attention to somebody else's foolishness. The next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? He's told me not to do that, right? And now you told me to go do it, okay? It's like the Raising Arizona scene, the bank robbery scene. Anybody seen that movie? No? Okay. Touch freeze, get down on the floor. Which one? Thank you. Anyway, the truth is, there's a different, my favorite Nicholas Cage movie. There's a different verse to pin, there's a difficult verse to pin down. Um, we do need to call people outside the church repenting of their sins. We are not to stand in judgment over them. There are some doctrines of Christianity that will not make sense to the non-spiritual person. We're instructed to be expected to be accounted as fools before them. We also need to do things like guard the church and guard who does and who does not take things like communion. Even the earliest instruction manual from the early church we have called the Didache, they did not permit unbaptized men and women from taking communion. But nevertheless, for our text today, knowing that the verse is difficult, and I read about probably eight different commentaries who all gave eight different opinions. It's like, great, that's helpful, thank you. But nevertheless, for our text today, we must find the wisdom to speak holy and just truth to others at the right time, when they are ready to receive it, and knowing where they are in their relationship to Christ and in their spiritual maturity. That is the best way to grasp this difficult verse in context. And there's a final section, how do we approach our understanding of God and His actions? Toward us. In verse 7 it says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
Again, to admit the obvious, this section could be a standalone sermon in itself. Repeating much the same things from Eric's sermon last week, I believe the clue here is found in verses 9 through 11. Who, have, who has ever criticized God, brought judgment to God, of not being good to them? Surely not you, right? Of giving them something, of, of God giving them something bad. Of God giving them something undeserving and saying, God really messed up this time when he allowed blank to happen. Just as we are to wisely approach the judgment of self, wisely approach the judgment of others in light of Christ and the gospel, we are to bring the same wisdom of judgment towards our relationship to God and adjust our expectations accordingly. Do not be quick or hasty in saying, well, look at what God allowed to happen this time. Or I wonder when God will allow something good to happen to me in the Eeyore voice that Eric so killed it last week on. Good job. Maybe God must think low of me. Maybe he has a deep ill feelings towards me since he allows such things to happen. The opposite things are requested of us. An amazing group of verses. We can't downplay this. It's really amazing. We are not to remain passively as God acts in our life, just merely accepting things that come our way. We are to approach God like we approach our daddy. We must have a correct understanding of God being our father who actually wants us to ask for good things. Yet we know at times what is good for us is often what, what we do not expect. Just the other day, I was cooking bacon. Um, bacon's, you know, great. It's a blessing to this world. And I, I took out the pan. It was sizzling hot. You know, it was popping and everything. And my four-year-old um, heard and smelt the bacon, and he screamed, bacon! And he runs. Okay? Now, I'm holding a pan. Grease is about to fall off. He's four -year -old, my four-year-old is like a big muscle kid. He's strong, and he's a beast. He's running, and I'm like, this could go really bad. So I kind of drop the pan on the oven, and everything's good. And I grab him, and I'm like, you can't grab the hot bacon. Trust me, I try every single time. It burns your lip. You get a fork, and you try to, like, put it, and, like, you burn yourself. Like, ah, I did it again. I burned myself. Or it's the day your tongue's singed. It's awful. It's like, we have to wait until the bacon's cool. I want to give you bacon. And what did he do? He on the floor, he screamed, bacon. I want bacon. I was like, I want to do the same thing, too. But we have to wait. If we wait, when the timing is right, you will get your bacon now as a father i want to give my son that gift and god is saying that's me too right don't bring judgment as if i don't want to give you good things in fact i am giving you good things and i want you to ask for more freely like go for it right test me is kind of what it reads like ask of me and i will give you good things so as we approach god we have to understand who he is and he is a good god who wants to give you good things the very God who knows you better than yourself our creator he's instructing us to do this right so um, <clears throat> in essence do not be hasty to think of such things about God or to bring such criticism to criticism towards God because this verse literally invites you to ask for his hand for good things so as we sum up this section we are left in one final crux passage and the entire Sermon on the Mount, this is one of those crux passages in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. <clears throat> For this is the law, and this is the prophets. All three of these things can kind of be summed up in this verse. It is teaching you and I to be loving and caring in all of our relationships to others. This requires grace, understanding, wisdom, and the time invested into that person to love them just as much as you would want to be loved and cared for. Far from our current cultural climate, we need to be much quicker to embrace, to listen, to serve, rather than stand off, close our ears, and cast 
judgments. Think about it. The very mission of God and the message of the entire Bible, okay, at least the Old Testament, but we can assume, you know, it's also the New Testament, right? It's summed up in this verse. Jesus says the verse is the law and prophets. Soak that in. If somebody says, what is the Bible, what is what's a summary of the Bible's teachings? That's it. Right? Treat others the way you want to be treated. That is the law and the prophets. Before we give some deep answer of, you know, complex atonement theology of how Jesus died for us, actually, he says this is a summary verse. It's really fascinating. We have to let that be, let that soak in. It reveals to us the agenda of the Sermon on the Mount, a crucial part of the agenda of the good news and the result of the good news, the result of our salvation in Jesus Christ and the, restor- the restoration that he is seeking within us by the work of the Holy Spirit, the way of life inside of his kingdom, which was the original vision for human beings in their life, the vision that we destroyed at the Garden of Eden, but one that Jesus is seeking to restore. It's pretty simple. Treat others how you want to be treated. It's the vision that lies behind all three of these sections. Opposite from being selfish, if we were to selfishly want this or that, flip your selfishness up on its head and turn it into generosity. Give to others what you want for yourself. If there's criticism in somebody else's life that needs to be said, if you need to wisely approach your brother or sister, how do you do it? You do it just as Jesus did, not to bring condemnation, but grace and truth for their growth. It's to be done as you would want it to be done, as you want to do to yourself. You don't want to be condemned. You want to grow as a person in Christ. You want to be more like him. That's how you approach them. And this leads us to the end of our sermon. So remember, you are a Christian first. You are to treat others as a Christian first. You are to receive correction from one another with the courage to grow from it and not be identified by it. You are to give judgment and correction to others, not for their condemnation, but for their growth, stemming from love. CNN and Fox News and Bill Mayer and Donald Trump's tweets are not gracious towards others. Let's be honest. Uh, there's, you know, uh, again, I'm just, I'll kind of make a full round here. You know, there's, if you hear some of these people, they're like, things are getting so nuts with people like not knowing how to criticize each other and have, how to have conversations and when people disagree. Like, oh, a civil war could be happening. It's nuts. It's, it's all meaningless stuff, right? And we have to be aware of this, okay? We can't fall for it. We have to let this kingdom ethic infiltrate our lives because the church, we are intended to stand as a glimpse of heaven on earth within this community. Jesus came to die for us to begin the final installation of God's plan for humanity, to recreate us in his image. With God and his glory at the center of all of our motivations, driven by our love for one another. Extending the grace we have received in Christ to others. All this stuff begins here. All this stuff begins in your community groups. All this stuff begins in your family units with you, even exemplifying it to those in your family who may not know Christ or have no understanding of why you are to still exemplify it. It begins here. So I want to be honest, I've said things like this, you know, from the pulpit many a time. I'll close up here in a few minutes, which usually means I'll go longer than a few minutes, that's okay. The, there are always, especially in Ocean County, there are going to be people who look, smell, and act differently than yourself, okay? And we have to let this be what guides us. We have to be so careful. I don't want to hear you. 
Be kind to your Christian brother and sister here. And the next sentence, start rallying off about some other people group that live perhaps close by or even across the world about how ridiculously awful and bad they are as if they're not even human beings in the very next sentence. I'll be honest, this happened before. Right? This is not the kingdom ethic. If anything, we are to be at those people's feet. If there's a problem with them, which half the time there's not, we just think there is because people tell us there is when we just buy into it. We go and we wash their feet. We go and we serve them. We go and we care for them. We go and we love them. We approach them not with this attitude of what they're doing wrong, right? And if there's anything to be spoken truthfully, it's done in love. These things guide us in church. We are supposed to be on the front lines of that kind of treatment of others. We are to be the ones exemplifying that on the very front lines of that. So guys, I challenge you to do that. God promised his helper, his Holy Spirit, to equip us for that work. And I'm telling you, our, our nation desperately needs this almost maybe more than anything else okay we need they need so much so this example and so i, I pray that we can uh, uh see this cast a vision for what jesus gave us here in the summer of the mounts and go and strive to enter this kingdom way of life um he promised uh he wants to give us good things this is a good thing to pray for i want to pray that he can give us this as we close and head to communion so let us pray jesus we um we thank you for the summer of the mount and uh, we have one more week left, and we look forward to that final week. But, Lord, I pray that as we, in our interpersonal relationships, Lord, that our identity first is you. And, Lord, that you will help us to understand ourselves and our weaknesses, our strengths, our failures, our mistakes, whatever it may be, the planks sticking out of our eyes, that we can rightly assess by your help without condemning ourselves. But understand those things and know that you are here to to love us and help us to grow, that we have people surrounding us that want to uh, just uh, disciple us and pour into us to help us grow. And Lord, when we need to approach a brother or a sister in their fault, Lord, help us keep in mind um, the cross and how you absorb the wrath of God on our behalf and the grace that is born from that and been lavished on us with all wisdom and insight, it says in the scriptures. May that be what motivates us as we approach our brother or sister who is in error. May we be aiming for their growth, for their transformation in Christ, Lord. And Lord, you, you said uh, that you want to give us good things. So Lord, give us this, Lord, uh, by your spirit. Uh, help us to see this, to catch that vision. And may it drive us, Lord, as we embody this. So we love you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Um,